The Witch Doctor Presents Status Quo A standalone short story written by Aquanimus Rex, mastered by James Curcio. Season 2 of The Witch Doctor is currently in the works and will be out soon. Enjoy. Be quick now. Come on. I can feel dirt grind beneath my knees. My back is sore from bending forward, yet I persist. My hand shakes, covered in earth, and I use the other to steady it, to straighten it, to force it erect. I pierce the topsoil up to the second knuckle, wielding my own hand as though it were a weapon. The dirt is cold. It wedges itself between my fingernail and the pulp beneath. Hurry up now, you hear? Doug isn't happy, he grunts, like a pig. Don't gotta be such a big baby about all this. I lean into the penetration, and despite myself, a gasp escapes me. The pain radiates from my fingertip, shoots upward through my arm and into my shoulder. It feels hot now, in that cold ground, throbbing. When I pull my finger from the earth, I can see wet clumps of mud caked in red. In front of me, a straight line of holes. There we go, Doug says. Just fifteen more times and we'll be set. I hear the scribbling of his pen against his notepad, see his flashlight wavering with each stroke. The light caught a drop of my blood as it fell from my fingertip. After half an hour, we went inside. I washed my finger with soap and water. Can't be too careful, Doug told me, his eyes lowered, studying his notes. You know anthrax comes from the dirt? No shit. Make sure you use the good soap. You know, the antibacterial stuff. Nuke it from orbit. I mimed laughter. It's the only way to be sure, yeah, I get it. Bandaged with a few pain pills in me, I crashed on the living room couch. Doug sat across from me. Rolling a cigarette, fat wads of pungent tobacco flew across his own flawless fingertips. Thin rice paper crinkled, threatening to burst. Before I knew it, an unlit smoke sat hanging from his mouth, immaculate as always. So? I asked. What does it say? He didn't answer me at first, just sat there, then whispered, Got a light? I fished in my pocket and tossed him my lighter. I threw it without thinking, without giving him a hint to my intention. But he caught it. Because of course he caught it. A wicked grin sliding out from under his skin. His jagged teeth aired. The glint in his eye said, You think you're pretty clever, don't you? His cocked head implied an air of humor. I felt like the butt of the joke. He thumbed the lighter once to no avail, shook it and tried again. A flame burst into existence, turning the tip of his cigarette to ember. So? I tried again. So what? So what did it say? He took a drag. I have to draw the charts. Need to interpret the earth. Exhale. Okay, I said. What about after that? A cloud of smoke wafted over to me, rose up into my face, and Doug leaned forward. His hair hung limp over the watermarked coffee table. 
After that, we heed. You know, uh, Bloody Mary? Doug asked me. He laid reclined in a lawn chair, baseball cap pulled over his eyes. His shirt was unbuttoned, belly hanging out in the dry summer air. Bloody Mary? I asked without looking at him. I focused my eyes on the miniature tower rising before me. My hands, a primeval biologic, adjusting, fixing. A monolith measured in inches, barely two feet off the ground. Gristle-stuck brown bones set like Lincoln logs in a roughly square shape, stacked and restacked, precarious and tottering in its minuscule post, a carnal totem to fried chicken and full bellies. But bones were bones. Each had been carved with pocket knife. Black soot ink dripped meticulously in the divots and lines thus gouged. The black and brown swirled together, the markings neither beginning nor ending to any human sense. Exactly as it had to be, a ward to buy us some time. Yeah, Doug continued, you know, the thing kids do, stand in front of the mirror and chant, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. I never played it. Doug snorted. I didn't ask if you played it. I asked if you'd heard about it. Yeah, I've heard about it. Well, no shit, Sherlock. Anyway, Bloody Mary. There's variations of the game, but usually they involve darkness. A candle and an incantation. Always involves a mirror. Ever notice that? Remind you of anything? I thought about it for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We spent the next hour covering all reflective surfaces. Doug's apartment looked like a washing machine had exploded inside it. Bed sheets, pillowcases, shirts, and whatever else we could find were taped up on the walls, over picture frames and hung mirrors. Better safe than sorry, Doug said when we were finished. We sat on the couch together, each occupying an end. Don't need to leave the front door open, so to speak. Your parole officer will be getting here at some point, but we don't need to hurry it along. I caught myself staring fixedly at a moth. It was crawling around on the carpet, inches from my bare foot. One wing was torn, crumpled, dragging behind it. The coffee shop was brightly lit and loud. My sister sat across from me, tapping at her phone. She was speaking, I could tell because her lips were moving, but my attention caught, snagged as if silk on thorns, by the clattering of plates and deranged braying of mutual patrons. Are you listening? She asked me, finally looking up from her phone. Her gaze made me uncomfortable, and I shuffled in my seat. Yeah, sorry. You talked to your parole officer yet? My stomach clenched. Scheduled two in a few days. He's gonna stop by the house. I don't like that friend of yours. Dustin or whatever. Doug, I corrected. She rolled her eyes. Yeah, that one. I think he's a bad influence on you. He's just going through some stuff, I protested. We all are. Really? I couldn't tell. From the way he was acting at the funeral, you'd think it was a bachelor party. I licked my lips. Doug has a... A hard time expressing himself. I bet he does. I don't understand your issue with him. He's always been a good friend. 
She frowned at me. You barely know him. He was Hank's friend, not yours. What? I've known him since the fourth grade. He used to come over for movie night. I stared at her. Jess, you can't really be telling me you don't remember. Her face flushed, a hand going reflexively to the side of her head, to the scar kept hidden by careful grooming. An artifact of her car accident, many years in the past, writ in torn flesh. I felt my heart skip a beat, my face redden. I didn't mean, but she cut me off before I could apologize. You really asking me that? Are you really such a fucking asshole? You want to talk about forgetting Mr. Space Cadet, Mr. Quit His Job, Mr. Shacked Up at a Drug Dealer's Trap House? He's not a drug dealer, I started, but she cut me off again. So what is it he sells then? I paused, speaking slowly. It's not... drugs. Just stared at me, letting me stew. It's... I said, stopping to take a breath. Not drugs. So you said. He's not a drug dealer? I finished lamely. Mm-hmm. Very convincing. I flapped my hand at her. Whatever. Believe whatever you want. You always do. This remark seemed to hit home because her lips, previously set in a sneer, shifted, gaped slightly. I looked out a window at a homeless man walking down the street. He was pushing a grocery cart. It was filled with trash bags, black and shiny, full to the threat of bursting with what seemed to be empty cans. I have feelings, you know, I said, still staring at the window. Things have been hard since. I left a statement in the air. Jess set her phone down, finally, its screen jet black from momentary disuse. I know it's been hard. It's been hard since Hank... since Hank passed. I know. I know. He was a good guy, as far as I could tell. He was, I said, watching as the homeless man stopped pushing his cart. I felt something touch my hand and turned spasmodically, trying to brush it away, realizing it was my sister's hand. Her eyes were full and watery, her brow furrowed, showing off the purplish branching of her head scar, peeking out. So sorry, I said, my voice catching. Thought it was a bug, sorry. Her hand hung there, half retracted, until she pulled it back completely. When she spoke again, her voice betrayed a waver. Hank needed help. He needed to talk to someone. I just keep thinking that he just needed to talk to someone. Nobody should have to be so goddamned, she sniffled, so goddamned alone. Yeah, I said. But he wasn't alone, he had us, he just got mixed up into some stuff. I neglected to mention that I had gotten just as swept up. That unlike Hank, I was left to deal with the repercussions of our actions, of our past meddling. You know what I mean, he didn't kill himself, just froze then looked away from me. What? I asked, putting a lilt to my voice, trying to play the clown like I did when we were children. You got a booger hanging out? I put a thumb to the tip of my nose, pushing it up, revealing the contents to all. Jess laughed, letting a tear drift loose down her cheekbone. She wiped it away, and her face set serious. You know he... Her voice trailed off, but I could see the determination in her jaw. She wasn't going to let it go. Hank was sick. He was depressed, he was... You, you know they found that shit in his system. He didn't do it. They found a note. I took a big breath. 
let it out, and looked Jess straight in the eyes and said, I know. A stranger's voice sundered our microcosm, shrieking, what the hell? Jess and I turned to look, to find the source of disruptions, and we saw that every single person in the coffee shop was looking at us. Each bore a look of disgust, some had lips curled back revealing rage-induced grimaces, fists tightened as hands were raised to mouths, a steady humdrum of whispered voices. Had Doug misinterpreted the charts? Was the parole officer early? What the fuck is your problem? I asked them, practically shouting. I reached beneath the table, placed a hand upon the hilt of the knife secured at my belt, hidden beneath my sweatshirt. I knew it was bound to happen sooner or later, but I didn't think it would be here, now, with my sister. Turn around, dipshit, one of the other patrons yelled at me. A middle-aged man holding his paper cup so tight I thought it might spill. I did as he suggested and saw what everyone was looking at. The homeless man I had been watching was standing across the street from the coffee shop. There was something jarring about him, and I realized he was naked. His body was pale as the moon, where it wasn't streaked with dirt. His ribs protruded starkly. His limbs were thin and stretched. His groin was a jungle of graying pubic hair obscuring his genitals, much thicker than the wisps of white that hung damp around his face. This figure stood and stared at us through the windows, his clothes discarded on the side of the street where the grocery cart still sat. The man began to walk towards us. People gasped. Someone call the police, one woman hissed. I'll tell him to fuck off, a man offered, quickly told off by his companion. I got up and walked to the front of the store. Jess called out for me, but I ignored her. As I walked out the door and down the sidewalk towards the man, I could hear only the sounds of my own heart beating in my head, as though my brain were sucking up all the blood from the rest of my body, pulsing and inflamed. I looked both ways across the street and seeing an opening, jogged across. I ripped off my sweatshirt as I did. When I was within 20 feet of the homeless man I stopped, sweatshirt held out to him. The man was no longer looking into the cafe, but at me, wholly intent. I could see broken capillaries in his eyes, snot starting to seep down his nose. Y you look cold, I said. Take this. The homeless man stared and did not reach to grab it. Sir, please, you look awful cold. I tried again, but to no avail. We stood there like that for a minute, and I decided to take the chance. I shuffled forward, still holding the sweatshirt. When I was about halfway to the man, he lifted an arm and pointed at me. I stopped moving. You, he said. I feigned his smile. Hey, my name is... You're fucked, the homeless man spat literally coughing up mucus at the end of his sentence. He spat a thick gob onto the ground. Get away from me, it'll see me too, you're fucked. His voice began to rise, and the man seemed suddenly aware of his nakedness, and scrambled back, almost falling. He grabbed his clothes off the sidewalk and covered himself poorly with them. He pointed at me once more, now shrieking. You're fucked, it sees you, you're fucked, it sees us all, you're fucked, fuck you fucker, it sees me, you're fucked. That night, after Jess and I left the diner and returned to our respective homes, I thought about the last time Hank and I had spoken. It had been an evening of copious smoke, of joint roaches gutted and packed into clay pipes. 
thinking about that talk. Wrapped up in blankets, lying in the dark. I seemed to stutter through time and stepped backward into the memory. So often revisited, it played like a recording. The edges of dream stuff giving them substance and shape. Well, some people think the world is a gift. A glorious saran-wrapped present handed down by a most beloved and compassionate God. A paradise made manifest, actualized in material and natural law. A Christmas stocking stuffed full of all the things man may need or desire. I was only half listening to Hank's monologue. There was no talking to him when he got like this. Of course, that's all bullshit and we both know it. There's good, there's bad, but the one thing that is for certain is this universe wasn't made for us. It's evident, all around us, always there, just staved off a little bit, that's all. Picking absentmindedly at my finger, I did think about it. I thought about outer space first, about my astronaut movie nightmares as a child, visions of vacuums and oxygen deprivation filling my head. I thought about deserts and tundra and the oceans. I thought about spaceships and submarines, about thick fur coats, snowshoes, all-terrain vehicles. All the things we had to do merely to survive in certain places, doing certain things. I thought about my childhood in the frozen north, where life was upheld for six months out of the year through the burning of heating oil, logs, and natural gas, lest the winter claim you. Take this neighborhood for example, Hank continued. We know there are coyotes all over the county, but they don't come here. Why? Scared of people, Hank scoffed. They ain't scared of us. Okay, I said. So what then? Why don't coyotes come down here? Wards. Wards. You heard me. Think about it. He started to draw invisible lines in the air with a fingertip. The whole neighborhood is like a grid. We put up lamps. We own dogs and cats. We cut down the tall grass and foliage that is inconvenient. We rock it down the clearest ways through with automobiles, crushing anything that gets in our way. So? Did you know the Zoroastrians thought dogs banished demons with their gaze? Hank asked me, as if suddenly remembering himself. The who? Zoroastrians, they were, you know what, doesn't matter. Old guys, real old. He picked at a scab on his face. And I'm sure you know about cats, Egypt. What's your point? Look at what civilization is made of. Euclidean geometry, you know, squares and shit. You don't find it in nature. Grids, lights, guardian animals, odd smells and colors. The whole goddamn neighborhood is a geometric extension of our desire to avoid nature, which is just another way of saying chaos. The whole thing is a ward, a collective of wards, a great machine built of them. Meant to keep that? He waved vaguely. Out there. You just said there was good, I pointed out. With the bad? There is. But it's not on purpose. The good is as random as the bad, but see, there's more to it. It's not an even split, this ain't some coin flip. I'm not proposing a grand dualism, a binary existence, no. You see, the good is random, the bad is random, but we are conditional beings. He continued, 
The paradise is refuted at every turn if you just have the eyes to see. Just think about the vastness of space and the colossus of nature, even on this planet, and how little of it is suitable for us. We are fragile, and as such, circumspect, cowardly, a species of compulsive ape forever ready to slit the throat of the virgin sacrifice if it keeps the rains coming, the crops growing. Hank made a wiggling motion with his hand. You know about that, right? Blood for the crops. What, like the Aztecs or Mayans or whatever? Or whatever. It's not particular. Comes in all forms. Whenever our... He waggled his head. You know, let's say security grid. It's as good a term as any. Is threatened? The status quo? You know what status quo means? Yeah, I lied. Hank didn't buy it, I could tell. And he told me anyway. Status quo means something like the existing state of affairs. It's preservation, continuance, tradition, and so forth. Okay. It's civilization, man. Pure civilization. Alright, I said. It's civilization. Civilization consists of membranes. Towns, cities, states, countries, they've all got membranes. They all export entropy. They all produce entropy, but they move it elsewhere. Just like biological life. So civilization is alive? No, Hank answered, though he didn't seem so sure, hesitancy in his voice. I'm pretty sure that would not be the word for it, but it's enough to say that these things follow rules, and those rules may have analogs in other parts of nature, but we shouldn't mix them up. So what's your point? Civilization becomes threatened, and so blood sacrifices are made. Oh, come on. I protested. Really? Illuminati shit? Hank barked a laugh, shook his head. No, not like that. If anything, you'd find it outstandingly mundane. Try me. Capital punishment, for example, Hank said, studying me for a reaction. I don't know, I said. Capital punishment does not deter crime. It doesn't stop criminals. They've proven it. Okay, so why do we do it? I shrugged. I mean, come on, it's, it's a deterrent. It doesn't work, look it up on your own time. The point is, it doesn't work, and they do it anyway. Why? It doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to deter criminals. Because it isn't about that. That's not the point. He made a chopping motion in the air with one hand. It's like the virgin sacrifices. Rain for the crops. But we're not agriculturalists anymore, are we? No, I'm not even sure what the hell we are, but that ain't it. So it's not rain, it's not crops, what is it? Why do we do it? I thought on it, and it dawned on me. It's expected? Law and order, baby, status quo, Hank said, starting to get excited again. We produce control mechanisms. We produce control like our ancestors produced crops. Our supposed doomsday isn't that the rains won't come, though that wouldn't be very good either in all truth. It's that law and order will fall apart. An apocalypse of criminality. We kill criminals and say it's because of this or that. We unroll the platitudes and debate the ethics. But when it comes down to it, we're just trying to stave off entropy the only way we know how. Sacrifice. Civilization will sacrifice as many people as it needs to preserve itself. But it's more than that. It's more than the bricks and buildings and streets. It's the soul of it. The soul of the collective, the shared dream, whatever you want to call it. An overmind. Does it work? I asked him. The sacrifices. Does it preserve civilization? He cocked an eyebrow at me. 
What do you think? I think you're fucking high, I said, laughing, waving my hand at him, and now you're fucking with me. But Hank didn't look at me, turned away so fixedly that I thought for a moment someone had arrived at his home, that perhaps I had missed a knock at the door. But all was quiet, and Hank didn't make a move. I opened my mouth to say something, not sure what it would be, when a voice began to curl itself around Hank's shoulder, a voice so alien to me that it seemed to scratch at the back of my earlobes, filled my stomach with bile, and I was horrified to realize that it was Hank's voice, same as always, now turned sideways and inverse. There's a watchdog and a warden, he said in that terrible cadence, a prison, a man who makes secrets leak, I've seen them. He turned then, and the look on his face was so unspeakable, I almost missed what he said next. Hank, or what remained of him, whispered softly, I think they've seen me too. That was the last time I talked with Hank, but not the last time I saw him. No words had been shared between us the night he died, when I had walked in on him stark naked, huddled over candles and muttering words in an unknown language. By the time the paramedics had arrived, he died, but not before I had caught a glimpse of something I still cannot comprehend. Though months separated our last conversation, and that dismal night, they both played side by side in my memory, until I eventually drifted off to sleep. You can't do this to people. A woman's voice screaming behind the front door of Doug's house. She kept slamming her palms against the door, making the whole thing rattle on its hinges. Doug and I sat on the couch across from it, passing a smoke back and forth. Our last one. You poisoned him, came the screams. You poisoned my baby. I looked over at Doug and he looked over at me. We both burst into laughter. It was so genuine, so unexpected, that we laughed even harder at the absurdity of our mirth. This seemed to enrage the woman outside and she began to kick at the door. This caused Doug to quiet instantly, and he stood up, walked over to the door, and threw it open. He did so just as the woman readied another kick, and finding the door no longer there, her sneaker-shod foot came hurtling past the threshold, and she fell forward into the house. It almost looked like she was trying to do a split and had failed dramatically. Doug loomed over her, looking down at her, and she froze, fixed by his eyes, but he did not speak to her. Instead, he fished something from around his neck, a little pouch. Opening it, he drew something from within, palming it. The woman on the floor watched, shrinking back as he leaned down closer to her. He held something between thumb and forefinger, but the house was dim, and I couldn't get a good look at it. The woman, however, could clearly see what it was, and thus seeing, she scrambled back out of the doorway, neglecting even to stand. For a moment, she sat there outside, looking back at us with the terror of half-squished and still-living roadkill. Doug kicked the door shut behind her. Whatever item he had shown her once more deposited in the little bag hung around his neck. He turned to look at me. This is it then, he sighed. The last sign. My ears pricked. What, what, what you mean? Yeah. I pointed at the now closed front door. You mean that woman? Yeah, he interrupted me. I deciphered the charts last night. It was clear as day. I've been waiting for a catalyst. It's finally time. Your parole officer is almost here.
First, he fastened my wrists to the chair, then my ankles, finally my neck. This might get pretty uncomfortable, Doug explained, a cheerful sing-song quality to his voice, but that's to be expected. I tested the restraints, they were padded but had no yield. Yeah, I guess so, are you gonna give me this stuff now or later? All in good time. The room we were in had once been a child's bedroom, made evident by the crayon drawings that filled one corner of the back wall. The windows had been taped, blacked out, allowing not a ray of sunshine inside. We only have until nightfall, Doug said, doing something at the table behind me. I could hear the clatter of steel and glass, but I couldn't turn my head far enough to see before your parole officer gets here. Yeah. More noise from behind me, something that sounded like liquid sloshing. This time, you'll be able to see what's there. This time, you'll get it right. My stomach felt full of worms. Sure. I felt him tap the side of my head. All right, it's time. Open your mouth and say, ah. The only light in the room was the projector, which cast a square of light against the wall in front of me. The wall was derelict any decorations, the only marks visible those of peeling paint and drywall, which absorbed the light cast upon them, became part of the picture. I'm going to show you a series of images to get us started off, Doug explained, his voice followed by the sound of shuffling papers. So just sit back and take it all in. I heard a clicking noise, and the blank slide was whisked off screen, replaced by a black and white photograph. It showed a man and woman in archaic dress, standing side by side with stoic expressions. Click. The photograph was replaced by a diagram of a statuette. It was labeled in tight cursive script, handwriting that I didn't recognize, and couldn't quite make out. I squinted, trying to make it clear, but the harder I tried to focus, the more my vision swam. Click. A shot of ink running down a piece of paper, frozen in time. The ink looked almost like blood, the paper an imprecise facsimile of skin. I watched as the ink began to run, animation projected against the wall. How? I asked, my throat dry. Did you get it to move? Doug didn't respond, and I watched as the ink began to drip and flow. The wet lines left dark trails, and when they reached the edge of the light, they did not cease, but kept going, thin rivulets continuing to the floor. Doug? I called behind me, pulling on my restraints, turning my head until my neck hurt, trying to make sure I was not alone. Doug, what the hell? No answer. I turned back to face the projection, and the horrible black stains that were snaking out of it. The wall it was cast upon wavered then, like thick puddles of curd sent slowly rippling, shifting, and at the same time entirely still. I saw movement behind it, through it, as though it were transparent, as though my eyes were opaque. I wanted to see, needed to see, what was behind that facade, and I reached up to remove my blinds, felt my wrists catch against the sweat-laden restraints. My eyes began to burn, at first a similar sensation to allergies, stinging and irritation. Then, pinpricks of heat began to eat themselves into the gelatinous sacks. I blinked, making it worse, but tears no longer came. With all of my will, I held my eyelids open. God damn it! I snarled, suddenly furious. I pulled as hard on their strengths as I could until I felt the blood leave my hands. I rocked forward, seized my legs, and threw back my head. The chair held. I screamed. 
When I ran out of air, I sat there, eyes staring at the now pitch black wall. Undulating drops of ink hung in the air, denying gravity any power in this place. They bubbled and frothed and swayed to and fro. The wall rippled. Then, the black wall deepened, concave and smooth, only to snap back and return to its previous bearing. It began to push outward, towards me. As though a plane of elastic, the black wall pushed forward, a strange sphere of hollow pits opening and closing, a fishmouth's shadow silently gasping for its version of air. A smooth representation, a child's idea of a face, lacking too much to be anything meant to live in this world. The face pushed itself further, stretching itself closer and closer to my own, pulling harder and harder at the boundary of the black wall. It began to whisper as it pulled. There's a watchdog and a warden, it said. A prison, a man who makes secrets leak. Those words, that voice, they struck me and cut through the pain. Hank? I've seen them, it continued, and I think they've seen me too. Hank? I tried again, my voice barely audible to my own ears. The face pushed ever so slightly forward, the hole that passed for a mouth, open and unmoving. Law and order, baby. Status quo. The projector turned off, and the world disappeared. After my ordeal, I stood on the porch of the house, my bag packed with what meager possessions I had, slung over a shoulder. Doug stood in the doorway, looking more tired than I'd ever seen him. Thank you, I said. You're welcome. I fingered the strap of my backpack. It's not personal, you know. He nodded, the cigarette in his mouth bobbing as he did so. Yeah, I know. I get it. Just make sure you come back and see me. You're gonna need to re-up in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I don't make the rules, he said, taking a drag off his smoke. I just know him. Or, well, kinda know some of them. Your parole officer shouldn't be giving you much trouble. At least for a few. I nodded, shuffling my feet, then asked. Why do you call it that, parole officer? You still haven't figured it out? He mocked. Really? I didn't say anything. It's a joke. That thing, that thing that's after you, the thing that you and your friends managed to piss off. Yeah. Doug laughed, stubbed his cigarette out on the door frame and flicked it into the yard. It fell smoldering into one of the holes I had made with my finger all those nights ago. I don't know what it's made of. I don't know where it lives. I sure as hell don't know where it came from. But I think I know what its job is. What's that? Law enforcement. What? Law enforcement. It's a cop, I think. He started to close the door but halted. You're a criminal. Or something like it. A psychic splinter in the hide of reality. It's the tweezers meant to pluck you out. Because of that little seance your friend did and because of your poor timing and walking in on it. Or that's the running theory. Your pal upset the forces that be. Primeval intelligence and some shit like that. Law enforcement? What laws? What the hell did I do? I don't know. But I didn't do anything. Ignorance of the law, Doug said, is no excuse for breaking it. Or so the ones holding the fire hoses and dogs always say. As above, so below. Didn't you get the memo? 
Some laws are written deep in the flesh of this world. This isn't about fair, it's about survival. But it doesn't ever seem to matter much to the ones swinging the billy clubs, so to speak, now does it? This is my life now? This is your life now. See you in a few weeks. Why are you helping me? I owe Hank. I couldn't help him. I might be able to help you. Consider me your defense attorney. What we just did in there, that was a hearing. Of sorts. We made our case. Before I left, I asked him one last question. You swear you're telling me the truth? He made a noise, then stifled it, retracting what he had been about to say. I saw a weariness in his eyes and the ever-deepening lines around his face. He looked like a man that had lost something precious, only to find out he'd never get it back. How the hell would you know one way or the other? He asked and slammed the door in my face. You've just listened to Status Quo, a standalone short story written by Aquanimous Rex and mastered by James Curcio. The Witch Doctor Season 2 is currently in the works and will be out soon. For more information and to follow other Fallen Cycle projects, please visit FallenCycle.com.